I am really looking forward to diving into today's passage. As Pastor Nathan was reading, I think I heard a collective, whoa, after verse 24. Uh, And that's okay. I think that's exactly what the historian wanted to do. I think that's the exact reaction that he wanted to inspire out of anyone who was reading this particular passage. And in fact, I think this is exactly something that he's done on a couple of occasions before. Uh, I'm going to reach way back into some of the other studies that we've done out of 1 Kings and remind you of a couple of different passages where a similar scene happens where this sudden sudden and jarring sort of inclusion of a scene that's pretty graphic is inserted. If you remember from 1 Kings chapter 13, we have the story of a prophet. And this prophet uh, doesn't actually do what he's supposed to do. And he actually goes out and gets mauled by a lion with his carcass left in the street. And the same thing happens actually in 1 Kings chapter 20. Another lion comes and, and mauls and, 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 and eats a person who seemingly does something that's rather innocent. And I think that's what makes those two passages somewhat uh, unnerving is the fact that there's something seemingly innocent happening and then the, the, the judgment, the penalty for such things is being mauled by a lion. It seems very much out of character, very much out of place. And I think though what, we, uh, what I hope you remember if you remember those two passages is that actually what's going on is something way more serious than just an innocent sort of ignorance of God. It's actually a willful sort of rebellion against God's word. And that's a various uh, uh, not a very, that's a very serious uh, uh, sort of uh, thing to do, a very serious act of rebellion. And so I would say both of those instances in First Kings with the lions, magnify Yahweh's authority and the severity of trying to go up against it. And I would say the same is happening here in this passage. In this passage, we have the story of this newly minted prophet, Elisha, who has just recently taken up the mantle or the the cloak of his mentor, Elijah. And here he comes across this sort of gang of, we could call them juvenile delinquents, (laughs) And because of their interaction, what results is two mama bears coming out of the woods and ripping him apart. It's a very graphic scene, and we ought to be unnerved. We ought to be sort of disturbed by these events. I think that's, again, exactly what the historian would want us to feel in this particular moment. And yet, even still, I would say that if you believe that all of Scripture is profitable for proof and doctrine, exhortation, as we know out of 2 Timothy, that that even applies here, believe it or not. And that, yes, even in this passage of these two ambushing mama bears, we can even, yes, here preach the whole counsel of God. And that's what I hope to do this morning. I hope you'll pray for me as I do that. As we've examined last week, chapter 2 begins sort of the succession of Elisha after Elijah's departure. We have that moment that we preached about last week where uh, Elisha takes up the mantle, takes up the cloak of his mentor after he has been translated into glory. Which is a moment that's both literal, he's literally taking up this cloak and putting it on him and then using it to cross over the river Jordan. But it's also a very symbolic moment in that he as he's taking up this cloak he's actually becoming uh, the Lord's prophet he's stepping into that office as the voice 
of Yahweh among his people. And here he is, he's the new messenger, we could say. And his word, Yahweh's word, Yahweh's work would now go forth because of and through Elisha, his new servant. Which is an amazing moment. Because yes, as we noted last week, yes, the God, or excuse me, yes, Elijah, the, the, the mentor, the, the very loud and boisterous prophet that had stood up to kings and, and called down fire from heaven on various occasions. Yes, he was gone. Israel's prophet was gone, but Israel's God was not. He was still working, still very much alive, still very much active as he would do and work through his prophet Elisha. And we see this work going forth in a very extraordinary way. Notice verse 18. First, or 2 Kings 2 verse 18 because Elisha is sort of taking a little bit of reprieve at Jericho. It says in verse 18, and when they came to him again, for he tarried at Jericho. So he's uh, that interaction that we have where the other sons of the prophets try and go out and find Elijah's body, find out where he is, find out where he's located. That scene, that interaction happens at Jericho, and he's staying there for a while. And they approach him, though, in verse 19 with a very, very concerning matter. Notice. And the men of the city said unto Elisha, Behold, I pray thee, the situation of the city is pleasant, as my Lord seeth, but the water is not, and the ground barren. Jericho, you see, was sort of in a bind. And it didn't really add up to these men. Perhaps they were the city planners, perhaps the people who are responsible for the upkeep of this particular city. And they confess to Elisha. You see the city situation. Its literal location amongst the landscape is ideal. They say Jericho is sitting on prime real estate. And indeed it was. Jericho was nestled in the fertile Jordan Valley, which made for very, very ripe farmlands. It was uh, very close by to a spring of the Jordan, which means it had a rich and abundant environment for this particular lifestyle. And yet they confess to Elisha, this, this prophet, something is wrong. Something is amiss. And in fact, it's not, it's actually deeper than that. As they say, the water is not, and the ground is barren. The water, they say, has grown bitter, offering no one any sort of nourishment, no one any sort of refreshment. Which, as you can imagine, as common knowledge says, this constitutes a very big deal. It's a crisis. We cannot go on without water. Water to heal, water to, to nourish, not water to keep us alive, to sustain life. Therefore, their confession that the water is not is really just a confession that the city is on the verge of becoming a ghost town. Everyone's going to have to move away from this place soon. Find somewhere more suitable for life. Somewhere more suitable to start a life or to keep a life going. But they also notice what they say at the end of verse 19. That the ground is barren. Which is a word which literally means childish. Or excuse me, childless in the Hebrew. Therefore their confession here. Their complaint to the prophet Elisha is, yes, that the water was causing the collapse of Jericho's economy. But also there's something deeper going on. Because not only are our livestock losing their young, but our mothers are miscarrying. 
Literally, Jericho was afflicted with a childless season. And yes, they believe something is going on. Something deep is causing this. Causing fields and households to be stricken with this great curse of unfruitfulness. You can see their words here are very serious words. Very uh, words that ought to stir them and perhaps stir them to the core. They were nervous about their situation. Nervous about what is happening and how to fix it. We cannot fix this situation. Therefore they approach this Elisha. Who they've heard has done some miracles already. And they approach this miracle man. Hoping against hope so to speak. That he can provide some sort of, of, of way to be healed. Way to be restored. Some sort of way that this situation can be fixed. And notice they bring this news to him. And notice what Elijah says. <laughs> Verse 20. They bring this news about their water that's bitter. And the ground that's barren. And, they said, and he said. This is Elisha now speaking. Bring me a new cruise or a new bowl and put salt therein. Which I have to just pause and think about this very strange request by the prophet Elisha. He's confronted by these men. Explaining that Jericho is on the verge of economic collapse. And yet, what is his response? Bring me a bowl of salt. Now imagine, imagine these men of Jericho uh, sort of smirking. <laughs> Sort of murmuring under their breath as they are dispatched to go bring this bowl of salt back to this prophet. What's salt going to do? What, what's this about? We know, of course, salt is a preserving and purifying element. It's one that's often used throughout the Old Testament. There are several references we can go to where it's used in both a very practical and very metaphorical sense. This idea of salt. But here, this use of salt is very curious. <clears throat> Because if you're wanting to jumpstart a society whose entire livelihood was centered around farming and agriculture, putting salt in the water supply would be a very, very unproductive idea. Because as you perhaps know, crops cannot be irrigated with salt water. So if you're trying to jumpstart the society, you're actually starting behind the eight ball, so to speak, by suggesting that something can be added to this water to make it better. So this solution is not just then unproductive. It sounds a little bit impossible to these men. What is the salt going to do? Why are we being dispatched to get this very, very silly elements? And yet even still they're brought to them. And it says, as Elisha says, bring me a new bowl. Put salt in it. And they brought it to him. And he quickly leaves. He leaves the men and he goes and finds the source of Jericho's spring. He goes to the very heart where this water was originally flowing. And notice what happens. And he went forth into the spring, verse 21, of the waters, and cast the salt in there. And said, Thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. There shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. So the waters were healed unto this day, according to the saying of Elisha, which he spake. A miracle of all miracles. Salt is thrown into the water, and yet the waters are healed. And as the historian says, centuries later, it's healed even to this day. The waters are still running pure. All those years ago, they are still running pure after what Elisha did at the spring. The waters are healed. 
The city is restored. Hope flows back into Jericho as this clean, pure water likewise flows into the city. No more arid farmlands. No more childless homes. Now this city is able to be built back up again. It's a miracle. But I want you to hold on that particular application because I want to move on to this other very troubling passage. And then we'll circle back around and we'll notice what this entire passage is intending to mean. Notice verse 23. He heals the water. heals the water at Jericho. And then he proceeds and marches towards Bethel. And he went up from thence unto Bethel. And as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city. And mocked him and said unto him, Go up, thou bald head. Go up, thou bald head. And he turned back and looked on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the wood and tear forty and two children of them. And he went from thence to Mount Carmel and from thence he returned to Samaria. So he's on his way on the road to Bethel, on his way to this city to perhaps continue this ministry that God has now here given to him. And along the way, these uh, young children, as our text says, these uh, young people come out of the city and they harass him and mock him tirelessly. And so unceasing is their mocking and is, the, is their ridicule that it actually gets Elijah's attention enough so that he turns and glares at them. And as it says in our text, he curses them in the name of the Lord, which then prompts two mama bears to come out and massacre these young people. It's a horrifying scene, I'm not going to lie. It's one that we uh, do not want to necessarily contemplate, not necessarily want to think about a lot. It's hard to imagine this man of God getting so irate, as we're told in our text, a group of little children that he, he curses them and leaves their fate to be decided by two grizzly bears. It doesn't seem tenable with the rest of Scripture. <laughs> So how do we make sense of this bloodbath on the way to Bethel? Well, first, I want to dispel something that I don't think that these are, as my text says, little children. (laughs) That adds a little bit more sort of questions in our minds that, that now Elisha is cursing kindergartners to this fate. But I don't think that he is. (laughs) This, I think... Requires us to do a little bit more digging. And actually this word children doesn't mean toddlers as you might imagine. Um, Actually in fact it's the same Hebrew word that's used in Joshua chapter 6. When the 12 spies are dispatched to go into Jericho and sort of get a lay of the land. The same word. Which I think means that there's uh, uh, just as we wouldn't imagine that... That 12 little five-year-olds are going into the walls of Jericho to spy out the land. So too, I don't think that this group, this mob of young people here are little five-year-olds that are mocking and harassing the prophet. I think both are untenable ideas and such that I think this group is likely a group of teenagers. Group of young people, adolescents who are coming out of the city. And yes, they're coming out with a massive horde behind them. I think that's another important thing to remember. Verse 24 says that 42 of them are mutilated by these two she-bears that come out of the word uh, of the woods, which I take to mean only a part of them. 
This is only a small sampling of a much larger sort of mass of young people that have come out of the city. 42 of them get caught. 42 of them get ensnared by the bear's paws. And yet more of them perhaps ran away and told the rest of the city of this horrific news. And then notice another little detail that I think is important to understand what's exactly going on in this particular situation. Notice as it says in verse 23. Notice again, and he went up, Elisha thence, unto Bethel. And as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children or young people out of the city. This, you see, was not a random happenstance sort of ordeal. This wasn't, they just happened to see Elisha passing by on the way. They're actually waiting for him. They're spying him out. This was a calculated assembly, if you will, of young people who had come out at the very sight of Elisha's figure on the horizon. This was a very motivated group of young people whose sole purpose was to go out and mock this prophet of Yahweh. That was their intention. That was their objective. It wasn't just they were making fun of him. They were making fun of Elisha's God. That's perhaps the most important thing of this all. You know, we can perhaps do some evaluating of what they mean by bald head. But I don't think they're actually making fun of Elisha's appearance. They're not trying to make fun of his shiny bald head. They're actually saying, you should go up and join your master. See, when they're coming alongside Elisha saying, go up thou bald head, perhaps he did have a bald head. But really, their very horrible remarks is that those two words go up, which is basically get out of here. Get out of this place, Elisha. You say that your, your master, your teacher, he went up into glory. So go up and join him. Go up and, and, and go with him. We don't need you. We don't need your words. We don't need who you represent. You see now their words are a lot more serious than just making fun of a bald head. They're mocking Yahweh in the face of Yahweh's representative. The respect, the disrespect I should say, that they show forth for this prophet is the same disrespect that they are showing forth for Yahweh himself. So in the end, if you find fault with this scene, and I don't mean this to be coy, I suggest that you take this whole matter up with God himself because he's the one who allowed this scene to happen. He's the one who, who authorized, who sanctioned this particular judgment to come onto these young people. And I would say, yes, even still, that if this horrific judgment was not authorized by God, it would not have happened. As we know here, Elisha curses them, as it says, in the name of the Lord. This was a divine penalty for this utter and sheer disrespect showed for the one true God. These youths then, these teenagers that come out of the city sort of ready to ridicule this prophet are there for representative, I think, of of Israel's collective, we could say, disregard. Their contempt for everything that has to do with Jehovah. Remember, at this time, Israel is very deep into pagan idolatry and worship. Baal rules and runs their churches, if you will. 
This disregard for a teacher of Yahweh is not just sort of here amongst these youths because they just want to have some fun. It's indicative of the entire nation state. The entire people of Israel are here represented in these young lives as they come out and mock and ridicule and deride this prophet of the Lord. So at first, because I was the same way, when I read this text, I thought at first that this punishment far exceeded, far exceeded the crime. And yes, I would say that it fits it exactly as the Lord would have it. Because it's not just Elisha here getting derided and disdained. It's Yahweh himself. Yahweh is being scorned by these little children, these young people who come out and mock him. Which then I think causes us and I think we have to step back for a moment. And notice what has happened. We have a city that was under a curse receive healing. We have a city that here was one that was uh, sort of filled with lots of Israelite history and lore. Has now received this devastating tragedy. Which is just to say, I think this entire passage, verses 19 down through 25, ought to be understood in this way. A tale of two cities, if you will. Because it's not, it's not by accident that this healing of the waters comes at Jericho. And it's also not by accident that this tragedy happens at Bethel. And in fact, that's the only way I think that we can make sense of this particular episode is by keeping both of these scenes at both of these cities together. You see, if you remember, actually go back to Joshua chapter 6. I want you to see this just so you can see exactly what is occurring here in this particular moment. Go to Joshua chapter 6. If you remember, this is the particular passage where the people of Israel uh, lay siege to the city of Jericho. Remember, you have all of the people marching around, blowing their trumpets, the the very uh, miraculous way in which Jericho is overtaken. And after all of that, after the siege is over, notice verse 26. And Joshua adjured them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord that riseth up and buildeth this city, Jericho. He shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn, and in his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was noised throughout all the country. So you have this moment where Joshua and the people of Israel have laid waste to the people of Jericho, save for those that Rahab saved. And yet here he lays down a curse on anyone else who would try to come after him and rebuild the walls. Anyone who tries to go on a massive reconstruction project of this particular city, they're going to be under a curse. And we know from history, from a particular passage that we studied several weeks ago, that this, these aren't empty words. Actually, they come to fulfillment in 1 Kings chapter 16. Go with me there really quick. Notice. This is during the heyday, if you will, of Ahab's inglorious reign as the king of Israel. And notice it says in verse 34 of 1 Kings 16. In his days, that is, in Ahab's days, did heal. The Bethelite, notice that, build Jericho. He laid the foundation thereof in Abiram, his firstborn, and set up the gates thereof in his youngest son, Segub. 
according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua, the son of Nun. So you have exactly the curse happening here centuries later. With Ahab seeking to rebuild the people, or rebuild the city of Jericho, rebuilding that fortress. It causes this contractor, Heel, two of his sons. That's exactly what it means when he says the foundation was laid in this son and the gates were built in this son. It's basically meaning it's costing both of their lives. So we have here a cursed city. A city that's under a grievous curse and all because Israel ignored Yahweh's word and it comes at great cost. The cost of Two young lives, which ought to remind them of what is actually happening here in this moment. Yahweh has laid down this curse, not just Joshua in the heat of the moment. But notice by contrast, if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 2, this other city, Bethel. Remember, Bethel is a city that's brimming with Israelite history. It has ties to uh, the likes of Abraham and Jacob. And its name literally means house of God. This is a religious site. A site of great moving and great promising by none other than Yahweh himself to his very people. It's a site of great spiritual meaning and significance. Which ought to make the decline of the city that much more grievous. And appalling. We don't have to go there. But if you read. Well let's just read anyways. First Kings chapter 12. We'll just skim over it really quickly. So you can get in your mind's eye. This appalling decline that this city sees. In first Kings 12. We have that horrible situation. Where the people of God divide themselves. And now you have Jeroboam in verse 25. He's the new king of Israel. And because he wants to secure his reign, he decides to build up two golden calves. Notice verse 28. Whereupon the king, that is King Jeroboam, took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And of course, we know from the the legacy that Jeroboam has, this is the moment in which he thrust Israel into sin. And not just sin, he made all of these people rebel in wickedness. And in such is this resume that he has that all throughout the rest of 1 Kings, as we noted, that these kings who went this way, who rejected Yahweh and accepted all of these pagan idolatries, they are said to walk in the way of Jeroboam. And notice, it happens here at Bethel. Verse 29, he set one up in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. We have this city that is religious to its core, that has God's mark on it. This is my house. And what a travesty, what a tragedy that this king has brought in these two idols to worship. Here are your gods. What a decline, what a rebellion against the one true living God. And so, back to 1 Kings 2. Do you see the point here? The cursed location receives healing. And the blessed location receives judgment. It's a, it's a stark reminder of what's contained, I would say, in God's word. Elisha, you see, is, his, 
is the prophet of Yahweh. He's Yahweh's mouthpiece. His words ought to be Yahweh's words. And the words that he declares, he declares authoritatively. Words, we ought to say, which could heal or kill. Words which could save or condemn. And I think what these two cities bring to light then is this whole counsel of God. And the whole counsel of this word that you have in front of you contains words, yes, of blessing and cursing. Words of severity and goodness. Words of judgment and grace. Or we could say it this way, words of law and gospel. I don't think it's too reductive to say that those are the two words which we find all over the scriptures. In fact, if you want to be really rudimentary about it, we could say that all of Scripture could be divided into words of law or words of gospel. Because throughout, I think God's whole intent is to bring us face to face against this law at which we all fall short. We know that from Romans chapter 3. But he evidences that throughout all of these storied lives of these people. The shortness, the fallenness, the wickedness of mankind. Such is why throughout this Bible, God's standard is repeated over and over and over again. His standard is holy. His standard is perfection. So that you get the point. You cannot avoid these requirements. There's no sort of dodging out of the way of this required demand on your life. It's God's word of law. And it's demanding. It is unflinching. It is unforgiving. And those who try to ignore it, they're like a man who looks at himself in the mirror and does nothing about his appearance. That's what James says. That's what James said. Well, I'll I'll just read it. I won't try and pretend I have it memorized. James chapter 1. Notice the the half-brother, we could say, of Jesus Here in his letter gives this amazing sort of text in which we see the ramifications of ignoring this particular law. If I could find James. James chapter 1 verse 22. He says, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. For James here, he's bringing us to the point. You're confronted with the law. You're confronted with its strict requirements, with its strict demands. And doing nothing about it is like a man who wakes up out of bed, looks at himself in the mirror, and goes his merry way, hair unkempt, looking disheveled. (laughs) This law is meant to bring us to the point where we have to realize something must be done. Now I'd say too, if you've read God's word... If you've sat under its preaching and yet you are still sitting here indifferent to its truths, rejecting what it says, sitting in unbelief, you are exactly like the youths of this city in 1 Kings chapter 2. Who reject in unbelief and openly mock the truth of the one true living God. 
It's the, the, the starkness of the law. That rejection of it and rejection of it and stiff-arming what God has for us results in judgment. And my friends, if that's you this morning, a fate much, much, much worse than being torn apart by bears awaits you. Stiff-arming this truth of God doesn't just leave you to the fate of two young mama bears. It leaves you to a fate of eternal fire. We could go to scripture upon scripture upon scripture where Jesus reiterates that for those who go into eternity rejecting the truth of God's law, saying that we don't need it, we can look in the mirror and go our way, a fate of eternal fire awaits them. The severity of those words ought to stir us, ought to bring us to our knees. That's exactly what they're meant to do. We're meant to be brought to the end of this passage on our knees and tremble at its ferocity. The gravity of rejecting and ignoring God's word of law is severe, it's eternal. And yes, rather than mocking such words and going our merry way, the law of God, God's word of law, is meant to drive us to one particular thing. Actually, I'll say it better. The law of God is meant to drive us to one particular person. Let me read you this beloved passage. You don't have to turn there, but just write it down. It's Romans chapter 7, where Paul is likewise dealing with much of the same things. And he's confessing throughout Romans 7, I can't get out of my own way. I'm a sinner, and I'm a sinner, and I keep on sitting in it. I know the truth of God's word, and I know the truth of God's law, and I cannot get out of my own way. And he says in verse 24, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's what God's law is meant to bring you towards. Who will deliver me? Looking in that mirror, we can say, who will save me? Who will make me whole? Who will clean me up? And then his words, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, that's word, God's word of law, doing exactly as it ought to do. Drive man down, whittle him down, beat him into the dust so that he sees that he needs a deliverer. And then in comes God's word of gospel, which says, Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. See, this is exactly what God's word, the whole counsel of God, is meant to do. It's meant to make us uh, to cry out for this deliverer. God's word of law is supposed to make us cry out for God's word of gospel. Because only when we've been beaten down by realizing that we've been rejecting, perhaps on the brink of eternal condemnation, this word of truth. When we've been crushed under the weight of God's demands. That's when we're ready to receive this word of mercy. This word of deliverance that comes in his word of gospel. And that I think is what Elisha shows us in this particular passage. Through him. 
The saving power of Yahweh would be publicized for nations and peoples around. That's exactly what his name means. Elisha means God is salvation. And notice that ministry of salvation starts with the cursed, wretched city of Jericho. His word of healing here. Which relieves these barren people, these beaten down citizens of Jericho, I believe is indicative of exactly the hope that we find in this beloved gospel of the glorious and blessed God. Because you see, it's not that this city did not deserve this penalty, they did. They deserved it wholeheartedly and fully. And they deserved it rightly as part of God's holiness. And yet through Elisha they become recipients of something that they didn't deserve. Which is exactly the definition of grace. See I think we have here the heart of God being displayed by how two cities are treated. The face that Jericho is the fact, excuse me, that Jericho is healed, I think, is one of the best indications that God Himself has an affinity for breaking curses. Remember Genesis 3? And man is cursed. Cursed into exile out of the garden. He's cursed to live and wallow in his own sin. Sin of his own choosing, a, a fate of his own making. And then. You want to hear some really good news? Galatians 3.13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Jesus, our hope, he is the curse breaker. He's the one who comes in and says, it is my prerogative to break curses and to heal people that don't deserve it. And you see, just as Jericho's curse, this curse of barrenness, this curse of unfruitfulness, was no match for this word of healing that comes forth out of Yahweh. Guess what, my friends? Your sin in mine this morning is no match for Yahweh's word of salvation. No one in this room is too far gone for this Yahweh to save. No one is too cursed for him to heal For him to restore. For him to bring back into his saving graces. And in fact that's exactly his delight. That's what he desires to do. He desires to bring us out of the wastelands. The arid desert wastelands of our sin. And bring us into his life and healing. His abundant life as he says. And he loves and he rejoices to turn those deserts into springs again. Into oases. In fact, if you want to read how that's done. We don't have time this morning. But read Isaiah 35. Because there we see. In that particular prophetic passage, exactly what happens when this word of gospel comes on into full effect. And so you see this morning, this text, I believe, is a snapshot of God's word. It's a little glimpse of what's going on throughout the rest of the pages of the Bible. That for those who reject who ignore, who turn a blind eye, who turn a deaf ear to all of these beloved and blessed truths... There's a fate worse than bears awaiting for them. And likewise, though, I think it announces 
That to those who are destitute and poor and helpless, that there's words of healing that are waiting to gush forth. Words of merciful restoration that are waiting to flow. And it tells us that this God of all things is a God of patience and grace. The depths of which we will never be able to plumb. And that, my friends, is where I must leave you. I can only take you so far in every single particular passage that I bring you. I cannot make spiritual decisions on your behalf. I can only guide you to see the truth. I cannot force you to accept it. You, my friends, have to stare into that mirror for yourself. And decide if you will go the way of rejection or go the way of submission and repentance and belief. That's my goal each week. Every single time I get behind this pulpit and open this word, my goal is to bring you to the feet of Jesus, the one and the only and the everlasting solution to every single predicament that you might ever face. And I know I don't just mean that as just a happy, clappy thing. Jesus is the solution. He's the answer to your hurting, to those places in your life that needs healing. And sometimes it it means that we have to accept something difficult about ourselves. Sometimes it means that we have to admit that we are deficient. But eventually you have to decide for yourself. If you're going to accept or reject these words. My friends, this morning the choice I believe is simple. There's words of healing waiting for you. Words of restoration that come forth out of this glorious and blessed gospel of the one true living God. And if there is something in your life that's holding you back from accepting this news, my friends, do not reject it. Do not turn away from it this day. I don't know what tomorrow holds for you. I do not know what lies ahead. Well, I do not know what is your fate, but I can say that there is a day of eternity waiting for you if you reject this truth once for all. And it is not pleasant. My friends, this word of healing is waiting. Waiting for whatever need you might have, whatever care that you might be weighed down with. There's a word of gospel that comes from this beloved God. And his word. Let us pray.